Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This is the season finale of A Million Other Choices. I am still your host, Kim. Wow, third season down already. It's really hard to believe. I am I'm doing a special kind of case for you today. It's much like the episodes I do on my exclusive feed where I don't stick to just mainly Canadian cases, but cases that have really stuck with me for some reason or another over the years and are maybe a bit controversial for the regular feed. And for those of you that are already subscribed to this exclusive episodes, I do have a big season finale for you as well. Uh, I want to go out on both of my regular and exclusive feeds with a bit of a splash because I think that there might actually be a bit of a break this time between now and the fourth season. But because I have paying subscribers now, I will likely keep the focus on making sure that there's some content still there for the next little bit. But I will be back again with season four very shortly. So don't forget about me and make sure that you get all of your friends to binge listen to the back catalog to date so that everybody is ready to roll for season four. This is the very tragic story of the Fritzel family. Before I start, there is a movie that just came out somewhat recently about this case. It's got um, Judd Nelson and that woman from that show with the really tall guy in it. You know the one I'm talking about. It's a sitcom. Till Death. Julie Fisher, that's her name. Anyways, I started to watch it, but as soon as I realized it wasn't really accurately following the story, then I stopped. So all my research is from online news sources and there's a lot written about this case and it's often in German so it's not that easy to distinguish fact from fiction and because it's such an unbelievable story it all sounds like fiction but I assure you it is not um, and that movie is called Girl in the Basement if you're interested I think it's on the Lifestyle Network it's a TV movie not a big screen one um, there is a number of books as well. One's called I'm No Monster by Stephanie Marsh and Boya Tensfisky. And The Secrets in the Cellar by John Glatt, who might actually be the more recommended one and closer to actual facts if you're a reader and you want to really deep dive into this case after you hear about it. There is a lot to go through. And I simply can't go through every detail in this case without doing like 10 episodes on it. But I'm going to give you the most important details 
And so one thing to really keep in mind is that um, because I kind of have to skim through some details over a period of a number of years, this story actually happened and the people in this story are real and have really suffered some dire lifelong consequences for it. On the evening of Saturday, April 19th, 2008, an ambulance was called to a large greystone house in, in Amstetten in Lower Austria, which is about an hour and a half drive east of Vienna, Austria, on a street that I won't even try to pronounce to attend to a teenage girl that had been dumped by her mother on her grandparents' doorstep, unresponsive and very gravely ill. The girl was rushed to Amstetten Hospital, unconscious with kidney failure and very near death. The girl's grandfather, Joseph, the one that had called the ambulance, trailed behind and showed the doctor, Albert Reeder, the note that had been left with the girl that apparently was named Kirsten, saying, please help save her. She is very scared of strangers and asked her to stay strong and she would be back for her. Joseph was beside himself, not knowing what to do. It wasn't actually the first time that his daughter, Elizabeth, had dumped a child of hers off on their doorstep. Elizabeth had run off about 24 years earlier and joined a cult, and over the years she had left a baby named Lisa in 1983, another girl was dropped off in 1994, this one named Monica, and a son named Alexander in 1997. And each time the baby was left with a handwritten note saying that she hadn't been able to care for the child, and each time the baby was taken in and lovingly cared for by the man and his wife, Rosemary, who was clinging to the hope that by caring for the children, one day Elizabeth would return to the fold. Joseph and Rosemary had reported her missing years ago, but the police had been very unable or unwilling to locate her, and she had refused to ever say where she was. But now here is this child that is much older than any of the babies that they had been abandoned by her before, and there are no records of her existence, no birth certificate, and no paperwork at all. Kirsten had arrived at the hospital unconscious with multiple organs failing. She was having seizures and needed to be put into a medically induced coma to try and save her life. The doctors notified the police of her arrival, not because she was having kidney failure, but because the young girl who was described as a teenager looked more like an old woman. She had missing teeth with bleeding gums from malnutrition and her skin was the palest white that Dr. Reeder had ever seen and she had clumps of her hair missing as well as scabs on her lips from repeated biting of her own lips. Kirsten had clearly been suffering from years of neglect. In addition to the coma, she also had to be put on a respirator and given dialysis as she had suffered a lack of oxygen. I could never find the exact cause of her medical distress, but it was rumored to have started from a bad asthma attack. And once notified of the bizarre situation, the police put out a public appeal on TV and newspapers asking for Elizabeth Fritzel to come forward because she might have information that could save Kirsten's life, like her medical history. But they also hoped to find her so that they could question her about how Kirsten's condition got to be the way it was. What was this cult and how were they treating children, etc.? There was strong suspicion that this was going to be a case of criminal neglect. The most recent letter from Elizabeth that Joseph provided was dated January 2008 and had come postmarked from a town called Kemeton. While trying to track her down, the police contacted a man named Manfred Wolfart, who was an expert on cults in Austria and around Europe. 
Malfred said that he wasn't able to pinpoint which cult she might have been in and that her letters didn't seem quite right, that they were dictated or something. The writing was off. Normally, cult people mention their religion, but this note never mentioned anything about her beliefs. So this furthered the mystery of who Elizabeth Fritzel was and what she had done to her child. Elizabeth Fritzel was born on April 6, 1966, to her parents, Joseph Fritz and Rosemarie, who had married when they were 21 and 17, respectively. Before having three extra mouths to feed, the Fritz were already a large family. Before Elizabeth had been born, Urkel, her, her older sister, had been born in 1957. Rosemarie Jr. was born in 1960. Her brother Harold had been born in 1963. Then Elizabeth in 1966. And another sister and brother joined the family in 1971. Twins Gabriel and Joseph Jr., and then in 1972, the last sibling, Doris, was born. So two parents, seven kids, a bit of a household. Uh, her parents had been born during World War II, and in Austria, that was not a great thing. Joseph had been born on April 9th, 1935. His father had been an alcoholic and abandoned the family when he was only four. So he grew up with just his mom, who worked hard, but they often lived in poverty. Apparently, his mom, Maria, had been left by her first husband because she hadn't been able to have children, but then had Joseph with this other man, and Joseph is what they, she called her alibi baby. Basically, she didn't really want him, but she wanted more to prove that she could have a baby. When the Germans invaded Austria, it wasn't considered a bad thing by most Austrians, and Maria had sided with the Nazis, but for some reason or other, she got herself arrested and then sent to a concentration camp when Joseph was young, so he went into foster care for a bit until after the war was over when he, she was freed, and she came back with a bit of a temper and emotionally broken, you could say. Not a lot is known about Mar Rosemarie's background other than her young age when she married, which wasn't exactly scandalous back in 1956, the year that they got married. Joseph's father went on to fight in World War II on the side of the Nazis and was killed in action in 1944. Joseph didn't really care too much. He both loved and revered his mother, Maria, seeing her as an example of a perfect woman, but also lived in fear of her because of her bad temper and controlling ways. But being the product of a broken home and living in poverty didn't keep Joseph down. He had managed to get a degree in electrical engineering at the HTL Technical College and worked for Volestapine in Linz from 1969 until 1971 and then became a technical equipment salesman and was able to retire at the age of 60. The family had also purchased a cabin on a campsite at Lake Mondas, which they rented out until 1996. They also purchased the house in Emeston, which operated as both their home, and they rented out units in it. So the seven Fritzel kids grew up in a rather wealthy lifestyle, and over the years, he did a number of renovations on the property. Elizabeth, always a feisty young woman, had finished high school at 15 and started taking courses to, to go into the culinary arts, and while away for her studies in January of 1983, she ran away from home with a friend of hers from her work uh, and hid out in Vienna. Her parents reported her missing, and she was found and returned home three weeks later. And once back at home, she kind of settled down a bit, although still unhappy with her family life. She finished her course and took a job working in Linz, which was nearby the Fritzl house. By the summer of 1984, just after she turned 18, she disappeared again. 
Rosemary and Joseph reported her missing to the police, but seeing that she was 18 and had run away before as a teen, not much was done about it. And Joseph had mentioned that in the weeks leading up to her disappearance, she had been researching alternative religions and she was, and he was worried that she had maybe joined some kind of cult. About a month after she had been last heard from, in, her distraught parents received a letter from her, the first of many actually over the years. In the first letter, she said that she had left to join this religious sect and that they shouldn't look for her, just as Joseph has suspected. Rosemarie was beside herself with grief that Elizabeth had left her family that she had been very close to for this religious group of wackos and prayed every night that she would come to her senses. For 24 years, she prayed without ever laying eyes on her sassy brunette daughter and only getting a handful of letters over the years. I will be right back after these brief messages. Needless to say, they were beyond shocked when nine-month-old baby Lisa was found outside on the Fritzel's front door, partially hidden in some bushes with a note pinned to her little sweater from Elizabeth, imploring her parents to take care of her baby. That children and education were not valued where she was, and they gladly did that, and Austrian social services didn't really didn't question it as the grandparents take the children's children all the time when mom or dad can't seem to manage. Then on December 15th, 1994, Monica appeared on the doorstep exactly as Lisa had. And again, Rosemarie and Fritzel took the baby in. And again in 1997, when Alexander showed up, all three taken care of by the grandparents in the years they should have been starting to enjoy getting ready for retirement. Then in 2003, another letter arrived this letter was not attached to the baby's sweater, but announced the arrival of Elizabeth's fourth child, a boy born in December of 2002. So who was Kirsten and where did she fit into the sibling pack? And why had she shown up on her grandparents' doorstep after so many years? And where was her Elizabeth, her mother? During the days that followed, Kirsten remained in a coma and unable to tell her story. Then, surprisingly, Elizabeth showed up with her father on the 26th of April, a petite, white-haired woman in her early 40s, with the same snow-white pale skin of her daughter, same missing teeth, with the posture of an 85-year-old woman. Dr. Reeder, feeling that there was something very sketchy about the situation, tipped off the police, and both Elizabeth and Joseph were detained and taken to the police station for questioning about suspicion of child neglect. Elizabeth was stone-faced and very strange at first, refusing to say more that she had joined a cult and walked away from her kids. She told them very little about what had led up to Kirsten's organ failure, and finally she relented a little bit when she was told that she was likely going to lose her child for good. Elizabeth said that she would tell the story, the whole story and nothing but the story, but first they had to promise her that she would never, ever have to see her father again. And they promised her, and she began to tell her story. Elizabeth began by telling police that Joseph, her father, had long been a strict disciplinarian and that her and her siblings were afraid of him. He was a tyrant. But for some reason, she seemed to have gotten it the worst. And at the age of 11, Joseph started to sexually abuse her. He started this by leaving porn magazines under her pillow and then masturbating in front of her before moving on to full rape, which he did pretty much nightly to her, and not just nightly, but sometimes in the car, while Rosemary was in the kitchen. 
any time the desire struck him, which was very often. And he spied on her, stalked her, and just basically controlled every aspect of her life. By the time she was 15, all she wanted was to be out of her parents, particularly her father's house. So one night at work, while waitressing, she had unburdened herself to a co-worker and the two ran away to Vienna. But they only made it a few days, maybe a week or so, before the police tracked her down as a missing person and she had to go home. So she did what she had to do and was determined that when she turned 18, she's out of there. And she was very close. She was just finishing up the training that she needed to do for a waitress job that she had gotten. And she was going to save all her money and leave her parents' house, hoping that she would never have to see her father again. And she started to make a plan to move to Linz to live with her older sister, Rosemary. Only on the afternoon of August 28, 1984, Joseph told her that he needed her to help her lift a door into its frame in the basement. Joseph had been working on some project in Reno's down there. No one knew what he was doing, but he told everyone to stay away because it wasn't safe with all the construction stuff down there, and he, he had been really private about it, which had suited the family just as well because the more time he spent down there, the less time he was upstairs being a tyrant to his family. He told the family and anyone that asked that he had, was building a nuclear bunker down there, which actually made sense seeing it was the 1980s and the height of the Cold War and all. The Austrian government actually helped subsidize the work for bunkers at the time. So, a bit curious, she trudged down the stairs to the cellar to help him. And it was a really heavy door, so she had to hold it while he secured it in place. He swung the door open, and the next thing she knew, there was the smell of ether and a cloth over her face. Everything went black when she woke up. Her arms were tied behind her back with chains, which were also secured to a bed frame that she was laying on. She could only move a few feet to either side of the bed, and it was a really dark room with no windows and smelled dank. Before she had regained her senses, her dad, Joseph, had returned to this makeshift basement prison and viciously raped her, repeatedly. After two days of being chained by her wrists, he gave her a bit more mobility by attaching the chains to her waist instead, not because he cared so much about Elizabeth's comfort, but because it was getting in the way of his... Uh, sexual activity aka rape i mean sexual activity is how the indictment reads and he proceeded to rape her several times a day bringing her bits of food every other day so until about six months in when he finally moved the chains and let her wander her small little prison a suite you could say with a small hot plate in what i guess he was hoping for would pass for a kitchen and a toilet and sink but no windows and no escape and then he told her that the door was booby-trapped to unleash deadly gas if she tried to escape. And then, for the next 24 years, that's where she lived, being raped every day when her dad would come down like 9 a.m., like clockwork. And the cops are like, wait, hold up, 24 years? She says, yes, 24 years. In 1998, sometimes she got pregnant and had to give birth with no medical attention and alone to Kirsten. Then the following year, she got pregnant again and gave birth to Stefan, and the two of them lived within her underground prison. Then in 1993, she got pregnant yet again to a baby girl named Lisa. Now this time, things were getting crowded in the basement, and Lisa cried more than Joseph cared for, so he made her write a letter stating that she was still in this cult, 
but that she couldn't care for Lisa and begging her parents to take Lisa in as her, their own. And Joseph took Lisa away and told her mom, Rosemary, would be adopting her. He was rather pleased to discover that adopting Lisa came with a monthly check, but that the monthly check would have been bigger if he had fostered Lisa instead of adopting her and wouldn't be making that mistake again. So in December of 1994, when she gave birth again to another baby girl named Monica, he did the same thing with her and Elizabeth never saw that baby again, but was told she was being taken care of by Rosemary. Fast forward to 1996 and she gave birth to twins in the cellar, again alone and with no medical care, and at this point she hasn't seen the outside world for 12 years nor breathed actual fresh air. She had named the boys Michael and Alexander, but Michael had not thrived and passed away within hours of his birth in Elizabeth's arm, probably from something a medical doctor could have treated. Joseph threw this little body into the incinerator and told her that when, whatever will be, will be with children. Alexander, the surviving twin, was taken to live upstairs with Monica and Lisa. In 2002, she gave birth to her last baby um, with her father as the father. Little Felix was born, but, um, but according to Joseph, Rosemary had her hands full with the three other children, grandchildren, children of Joseph's, so Felix stayed in the basement with Elizabeth, Kirsten, and Stefan. With the arrival of each baby, although she was horrified of their conception, she did enjoy the company and gave her a purpose as she tried to teach them reading and writing and also to try to shield them from the imprisonment. Over the years, Joseph had provided a TV and she told him that the images were a fantasy world and weren't real. He gave her some medical books from the 1960s and a pair of scissors to help her with each birth. And then in 2008, they had all gotten sick with a bad flu, probably brought in with Joseph and his daily visits, bringing with him foreign germs that they had no immunity to. And Kirsten had gotten very sick and Elizabeth had begged Joseph to take her to the hospital or else he would be up on murder charges if she died. He had relented and took her from her. But when the news started running stories that they needed to help save Kirsten, she begged for him to let her go and see her, and that's why she's there now. So, as I'm sure you can imagine, the police are looking at Elizabeth like she has lost her mind, and none of this could be true. She's making it all up to avoid looking like a bad mother. Meanwhile, Joseph is in another interview room telling them that Elizabeth had joined this cult many years before, was a bad mother, and refused to tell anyone where she was and kept dropping babies off on their doorstep. But when the officers tell him that Elizabeth is telling a very different story, he says, Okay, sorry about my family, but it can't be undone. He denied sexually abusing Elizabeth, though. He told them that, yes, he kept them in the cellar, but it was only because at the time Elizabeth was going down the wrong path. She was slutty, doing drugs, so we had to keep her safe from that. And actually, Elizabeth would have sex with anyone. She was super slutty, and so after a few years, I just couldn't control myself anymore, and we had consensual sex, and our relationship was perfectly normal. And keeping a family in the cellar, like, what's the big deal here? It was her idea to have kids. He just went along with it, and he took care of them. He fed them and spent time with them. We were a family, and I saved Kirsten for pity's sake. She would have died if not for me, and I hadn't had sex with Elizabeth in many months, and I was going to let them go anyways. I'm getting too old for this shit. 
Okay, so I feel like I washed over some very important stuff here. Like what the heck was going on for those 24 years and what the what is Joseph's malfunction? I will be right back after these brief messages. So let's go back a bit here. Joseph's grandmother was named Anna and lived a pretty normal life until she married the owner of a mill who was rich and had servants and all that good stuff. But Anna couldn't have kids or at least didn't get pregnant. So instead, he wound up impregnating one of their servants. Well, that's a little misleading. He actually raped one of the servants who fell pregnant and then who he quickly fired and then gave Anna the baby to raise, which he then did the same thing with two other servants, and all three were given to Anna and forced to raise as her own. Anywho, not off to a great start in this family. Maria was the result of one of these rapes, and Joseph would go on to take his mother's last name, Fritzel, and not a great mom. She beat him a lot, and Joseph was terrified of her, until he was 16 when he stood up to her and struck her in the face. And after that, the table seriously turned, and Joseph would go on to physically and verbally abuse his mother. There are rumors that there was some sexual abuse going on as well, as Joseph was one, once quoted as saying that he managed to suppress his urges around his mother. Now, spoiler alert, Joseph grows up to be one of the biggest sickos that I've ever heard of. As a teenager, he became what we call what we used to call a flasher, where he would walk up to a woman at a park or something in a trench coat with nothing on underneath and expose himself to the woman, enjoying the reaction of shock and horror. But he met and married Rosemarie and did little to hide from her his proclivities for the depraved. Rosemary was very demure and shy, so she was easy to manipulate and lie to, and she would just go with the flow, doing what she's told. But Joseph didn't treat her particularly well, always calling her fat and demeaning her, and would get his sexual fix by stalking women, exposing himself to women, and just basically being a creepo. Then he started stalking this young nurse and mother to a young child. He broke into her house by coming through the window and watched her sleep and went into the kitchen, got a knife and crawled into bed with her with his pants down and raped this poor woman. Now he was arrested and charged and pled guilty to rape, but was only given an 18-month sentence and served less than a year before being back at home with Rosemary and the kids. And to make that worse, rape at the time in Austria is wiped from your record after 10 years. So Rosemary pretended the whole thing never happened and forgave him his trespasses against other women. And so he, he, she had no issue with him going to brothels, sometimes in countries like Thailand, where he can indulge his sick and disgusting desires in very young girls and sometimes boys. As she grew older, he took his mum in to his house, which he was sharing with his wife, Rosemary, and his kids. Now, he might have taken her in, but he certainly didn't take care of her. For the most part, he locked her in his attic and boarded up the windows so that she was forced to basically live in a dark room for hours and sometimes days at a time. Somehow, he managed to keep very good jobs and amass quite a bit of wealth over the years while dominating his family and keeping them under an iron thumb. He invaded their privacy and beat them all rather mercilessly. So each kid moved out pretty much the day they moved 18, and Elizabeth was supposed to be the next to move out, leaving her horrible family life behind. 
What she didn't know, or I guess no one really knew, is that this underground bunker he was building had nothing to do with the Cold War and the threat of nuclear war, and goes way beyond a man cave. This was a dungeon, a prison with the intent to house his daughter Elizabeth, I guess, forever. And this bunker was something else. It had four rooms, plumbing and everything a low-rent, shabby, illegal suite would have except for windows, a door that locked from the inside rather than the outside. It also had a few things that most illegal basement suites don't, like a rape room. The entrance to the cellar was landscaped with overgrown trees and was closely guarded that tenants weren't allowed anywhere near it. And this bunker took him years to build, so Elizabeth's captivity was planned. And the room where Elizabeth was originally kept while she was chained up in the early days of her imprisonment was actually at the end of a series of eight locked doors and was located behind a real-life cloak-and-dagger bookshelf hidden doorway that you had to crawl into the space behind that doorway. So basically, you came down the basement stairs like any regular basement, and there's a utility room and then this doorway to a workshop all very normal so far, then this bookshelf into the workshop that hid a very heavy door, which leads through a hallway, but more like a tunnel, to a, quote, living area, which is just a cheap kitchen table and chairs, a couple of cupboards on wheels, and a hot plate sink. Beyond that, to the right, another hallway tunnel that leads to this rape room, which just contains a dirty mattress, padded walls for soundproofing, and then there's a small bathroom with a toilet sink and shower stall, and two bedrooms, which are literally just two rooms with a bed in each of them and nothing else. But it didn't start off like that. In the beginning, it was just basically a room, a very dimly lit and damp, creepy room, where she was chained to a king-size bed where Joseph would come down daily and rape her and beat her over and over again, and then leave her with scraps of food in the dark. He left her there for the first 24 hours all by herself with no explanation. There was no natural light, no ventilation, no AC, no heat, no these low ceilings that she couldn't even stand up all the way and had to hunch over a bit. Mold grew and the walls were always wet with the humidity. He later brought down a TV so that they could he could watch porn with her, not for entertainment, and then made her reenact the scenes in some really disgusting porn. And not your normal porn, but the really sick stuff. The addition with the extra rooms wasn't done until after her second child was born, and her and the kids were the ones that were actually forced to dig out the extra spaces with their hands, and it took years to do, and even wasn't started until she had been there for nine freaking years. She couldn't reach the light switch, even if she tried, and Joseph would often leave her in the dark to purposely throw her off her schedule and time and make her time blind. Not that it was needed without natural light. It was impossible for Elizabeth to comprehend the, the passage of time, whether it was day, night, summer, or winter. He told her that if she tried the door, it would electrocute her and then release poisonous gas, which she probably would have preferred, but she couldn't reach the door anyways. She considered suicide or escape plans until she gave birth to Kirsten, which kept her, gave her a purpose and to protect her and take care of her kids. Rats were common in the dark. I can't even imagine hearing rats running around. No stimulation in a smelly, wet basement alone. And when she wasn't alone, she was being beaten and raped. And just try to wrap your brain around how long this captivity went on for. 18 when she was taken and she was 42 
the next time she saw daylight and a change of surroundings. Imagine how scary that alone would have been. And then after a few months, months, he finally took the chains off. But by this time, the doors were remote controlled, so she couldn't escape anyways. And he took the chains off because they were getting in the way of his movement when he raped her. Then she missed her period and then another. Now, Joseph was happy thinking, this is great. Every woman wants a baby. You should be thankful for this gift that I've given you. This first pregnancy would end in a miscarriage at about 10 weeks, but she soon got pregnant again. Well, by soon, I mean four freaking years after she'd been in captivity. She never wanted kids. I mean, she was 18, but particularly I would think she didn't want to have her father's kids. And as she started to show, Joseph lost sexual interest in her, so he left her there to give birth on her own. He threw her a couple of pregnancy and birth books and just left her there. I don't know if you have ever given birth like in a hospital with drugs and stuff, but try to imagine never being to a doctor, knowing nothing about what is happening all alone in a dark room. Pregnancy and birth is a medical condition and is still risky. She read that book cover to cover in the dim light, terrified as you would be. Close to her due date, Joseph finally returned and threw her a blanket, a pack of diapers, and a goddamn pair of scissors to cut the unbiblical cord with. She gave birth without even an aspirin for the pain by herself, a terrified mere child. I get that birth is a natural experience, but is it? Do you remember the days of trying to figure out breastfeeding and all of that without someone experienced to help you? But somehow she managed to give birth to Kirsten alone and thankfully everything went okay. Joseph did bring formula and diapers along with food, which he brought from, bought from stores a good distance from the house so as not to raise suspicions. Joseph started to consider Elizabeth and Kirsten his proper family, so of course he would buy them gifts, like lingerie for Elizabeth to wear when he raped her, a promotional notepad from the bank, which she wrote the birthdays of her children on. After Kirsten was born, he commenced raping her again, now that he, she was back to being skinny. Then Stefan came along two years later, same circumstances, then baby Lisa. But when Lisa was about nine months old, something was wrong and she cried all the time. And not just colicky, but serious crying. And Joseph couldn't stand it, thinking it was going to be heard upstairs. Elizabeth begged him to take her upstairs to a doctor. So he came up with this plan to have Elizabeth write a letter that this cult didn't want her and that she couldn't take care of her and leave her on the doorstep for Joseph to find. And so that's what he did. Joseph, quote, found Lisa in a box on the doorstep with a note that read, Dear parents, I hope that you are all healthy. You will probably be shocked to hear from me after all these years with a real life surprise, no less. I am leaving you, my little daughter. Lisa, take good care of my little girl. And the cult apparently didn't approve of her having more children. She mentioned that she already had a daughter named Kirsten and a son named Stefan. And she begged them not to look for her. It would be useless and would only bring more harm to me and the children. Elizabeth was heartbroken to have her child leave her arms, but thankful that at least one of her kids had a chance to live a somewhat normal life. Lisa would go on to have heart surgery, which would save her life. And Joseph discovered that adopting babies was actually great because it came with a monthly check from the government. The same thing happened when Monica was born, so she was taken upstairs. This time, Joseph uh, made sure that Rosemary would find her because for Joseph to find two babies, was that was just suspicious. 
He made Elizabeth make a recording of her voice, and he then phoned the house from a payphone and played the recording. Now, Rosemary thought it was odd that they had recently changed their phone number, and Elizabeth had been able to get the number, but figured cults, I guess they're like the CIA. Then the twins, and when Michael Hedden survived and died in her arms, and she didn't know what to do with her grief, um, he finally returned, saw the baby's little corpse, and he was like, well, it was probably for the best, and then threw the body in the house's incinerator and spread his ashes in the garden and took Alexander upstairs to be again, quote, found. And lastly, Felix, who had to stay downstairs because, you know, Rosemary had her hands full upstairs with Monica, Lisa, and Alexander. I will be right back after these brief messages. CPS never got suspicious. They just figured Elizabeth was a horrible person that had joined this nutty cult and thank goodness for Joseph taking these kids in. What a great guy. Also, shocker, under Austrian law, his criminal record was wiped out after 15 years, so CPS never knew about his rapey past. Neighbors just thought Elizabeth was a terrible person and a hoe and a bad mom and just thought how lucky the kids were to have such a great grandfather who took them in and cared for them. Elizabeth had been raising her babies in 380 square feet, and then he finally expanded the space to add two tiny bedrooms, which Elizabeth, Kirsten, and Stefan had to do most of the work on. Elizabeth was happy to have some extra space, but the kids were actually terrified of it. They had never known space, so to have walls that you dig through and make more space was something that their little brains just could not comprehend. Elizabeth did everything she could to give the kids some kind of childhood. She taught them to read and write. She tried to make up games. They watched TV that they considered fantasy. She begged Joseph for books, but imagine growing up never knowing what grass feels like or even a breeze on your face. And I am so nauseous over this story. She had to beg them to bring them vitamin D tablets to prevent rickets. So by the time Kirsten got very sick, Joseph was now in his 70s and wasn't getting around as well. So he, in his delusional thinking, thought Christmas 2008 was going to be a great time for the family reunion. He told Elizabeth that he would be releasing her and the kids and that they would show up from this cult and everyone would be great. Plus, you know, with her white hair, missing teeth, just ill repair that she was in for the years of torture, she just wasn't really appealing to him sexually as much. But Elizabeth never allowed herself to believe it. She figured one day he would die and they would perish soon after from starvation. And she just accepted that. But Christian got sick and when Elizabeth begged him to take her to the hospital, he decided the time had come. So he took Kirsten out. And when they started asking for Elizabeth to come forward, she was also let out to tell this cult story. Uh, and I hate that I feel like I skipped over so much of this daily life of those 24 years in the cellar for Elizabeth, Kirsten, Stefan, and Felix, but I can't comprehend it anyways. So even though I know a lot more details than I can provide today, I still just really can't grasp what life was like for them on a daily, monthly, yearly basis. Hell on earth, that's all I can really say about it but so much hell that the days just kind of blend into each other. Now, I tell a lot of stories where I can kind of skim over the passage of time, and then we fast forward two years to the trial or whatever, but I've also waited for spaghetti to reheat in a microwave, and I know how slow time can actually pass sometimes. 
So 24 years is just something that I, I just can't, my brain could just not go there. I don't think that there's anyone that can say, oh, I know how she feels. There is nothing to compare their experience to. It's not at all like the time that you were stuck at the airport for 16 hours when your flight was delayed. You could have been stuck in an elevator for three days without food and water with a guy who talked incessantly about saltwater fishing in 1992. And I'm sorry that that happened to you, but it's nothing like their life was for 24 years. And to top off the sicko cake, he had the nerve over the years to talk about life upstairs and bring photos from their family vacations. And one officer said he has shown no remorse for his victims. He is so arrogant that I don't even think he thinks he's done anything wrong. And so the cellar, when the police went to investigate, was horrible. The smell was overpowering. A moldy 24 years of sweat and tears and old food and garbage. There are pictures of parts of it available online, but I think better than seeing you need to picture the smell and how low those ceilings are and how tight are the hallways. They are claustrophobic just to look at, let alone imagine living in for like two decades. Elizabeth, who walked with a limp now, and the children, including Kirsten, who recovered from her illness, waking up from her coma after seven weeks in a hospital bed, which must have been terrifying seeing doctors and nurses and just light in general, uh, they were taken to an inpatient treatment center to try to slowly integrate them back into the world. They had terrible issues with light, having never been exposed to it. Um, they didn't really walk properly after years of being forced to be stooped over. Because remember, the roof was so low that the kids grew up. They just were never able to stand upright completely after a certain age. And they were also terrified of open spaces. I mean, they would, they would have issues out the wazoo, like PTSD to the 10th degree. Uh, they had never seen a car or been in one. They'd never saw trees or computers, smartphones, the moon, the sun, the stars, the entire world was new to them. And as much as you'd think that they would be thrilled about it, it was actually scarier than you could imagine. And the sounds of doors closing would just send them into a panic. And the kids living upstairs who learned that they had siblings that had lived that they had lived above for years they had survivor's guilt and were traumatized by being lied to rosemary had a nervous breakdown so at 73 he had to find a way to put him away for the rest of his life and he was charged with incest rape coercion false imprisonment slavery and murder by neglect for the death of michael he pled guilty to everything but the murder charges and held a file folder over his face anytime cameras were around. And the court had psychiatrists on hand for any jury members that found the testimony too hard to deal with. A no-fly zone was put in place over the courthouse to prevent the media from intruding. His indictment was 27 pages long and read into court by prosecutor Christine Burkheiser, who said Joseph used Elizabeth like a toy. In her opening statement, she asked the jury to imagine living underground in just 11 square meters of space with just a wash basin, a sleeping corner, no warm water, no shower, no heating, and worst of all, no daylight. And the only air Elizabeth received was through the gaps in the wall. In the first few years, Joseph barely even spoke to her. So this is part of her opening statement. None of us can really imagine what it was like to be in that cellar. In the media, you will always have heard a lot about this case. Some of these details are true. Some of them are not. You are obliged to pay attention only to the truth. 
So please try to forget what you've read up until now. Push it to one side. During this trial, you will be confronted by two sides of one story. Now, Joseph had hired defense lawyer Rudolf Mayer, who told the jury this kindly old man wasn't a monster. You need to keep emotions out of this. Even with someone like him who has been described as a monster, it's irrelevant if he's an unsympathetic character or a monster. In fact, he cared for two families. Would a monster do that? You cannot call someone who does that a monster. If you only want your daughter for sex, you don't want children. You would let them starve. I mean, this was just a very caring man who took a Christmas tree down to the dungeon for his family and even gave them an aquarium so that they could watch the fish. The prosecution needed a conviction on the murder charge because without it, the max sentence he would get is 15 years, but could potentially be out in like seven years. Now, fortunately, on March 19, 2009, Fritzl was sentenced to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole for 15 years, and he spent most of it in solitary confinement. Now, the Sun in the UK was able to track down uh, some information about the surviving family in 2013. At that time, all of the Fritzl kids, most of them now adults, were given new names, moved to an undisclosed two-story house to try and piece their lives back together without the media around. They had CCTV cameras, lots of security put up. And at that time, the son reported that Kirsten loved music and clothes and had a boyfriend at the time. Stefan had dreams to become a ship's captain and Felix was doing well. He was going to school with kids that didn't know anything about his past. And as for the so-called upstairs children, Monica went to university, Lisa finished high school, and Alexander had hopes of going into mechanical engineering. Uh, Elizabeth was was awarded the house, which was worth about £680,000 and a $50,000 as a lump sum by the state. Joseph sent her numerous letters from, from prison. She hasn't answered any of them, apparently. In some of them, he had the nerve to ask for money. In 2012, Joseph and Rosemary divorced. <laughs> apparently, he divorced her because she had stopped visiting him in prison and no longer wanted anything to do with him. She changed her name and moved to Linz and makes a bit of extra money from her pension by selling crafts. Uh, there was obviously some friction for a while between Elizabeth and her mom, Rosemary, because Elizabeth, she just had some trust issues with her mom, believing that Joseph's lies about her and how she couldn't have known that. And from most accounts, they are reportedly doing a lot better on reconnecting. In 2017, Joseph found himself beat up and missing front teeth from an attack from some other inmates. He changed his name soon after Joseph Meerhoff and was happy to tell journalists that they should maybe look into other people's cellars because he's pretty sure that other families have girls down there. Uh, Like kind of like, haha, as a child rapist and perpetrator of incest, I imagine he wasn't well regarded by his fellow inmates. In 2018, the house with the dungeon was sold to a developer that completely renovated it and now rents it out and painted the building a bright orange to sort of dress up the shabby, gloomy past of the house. By 2019, it was rumored that in his mid-80s, he is now suffering from dementia and didn't want to live anymore. Uh, But in April of 2022, he was moved from a psychiatric detention facility to a regular prison. And in March 2023, so just this year, uh, also the first year he's eligible to apply for parole, he wrote a book. 
Well, he co-wrote it with his most recent lawyer, Astrid Wagner. Now, I won't tell you what it's called. Hopefully you don't buy it. But in the book, he basically says he's a great guy and quite the ladies man and doesn't really understand what all this fussity fuss is about. Reportedly, in 2019, Elizabeth and her bodyguard, Thomas Wagner, probably not his real name, started a romantic relationship. And as far as I know, they are still together today. And that was the horrible, tragic story of the Fritzl family. I know it all sounds like fiction, but again, I can assure you it all happened. It's I I just have no words about this story. It's just unbelievable. I can't I can't even imagine. I don't like the fact that I have to go out on such a horrible story, but it was just such a story that just sits with me that I just felt that I needed to share it. And sort of that's how I'm ending my season three. So I'm going to be back again. I'm not sure when, just, you know, if you're subscribed, which I hope that you are, or you follow the show that I hope that it just, you'll see me pop back up in the feed in the next few weeks. And you'll know that I have started season four. You can follow me on Instagram. I always got lots of posts there. Uh, I am on YouTube now. I, what I kind of do with YouTube is I take some of my past episodes that you've already listened to and then just make sort of visual coverage of them. It's, it's a completely different platform. Um, but if you are interested in some of those, you can go watch that. You, of course, can subscribe to the exclusive content. There'll always be stuff in there. Plus, there's some old back catalog in there. Um, and some of the cases that I've done on that exclusive episode, I'm, I really, I'm really kind of proud of them. Um, and I think they're worth a listen. And I know that you can, you can like subscribe for like $1 for like a week. You could probably download a bunch of stuff. And then if you wanted to cancel after that, you can do that. Honestly, I really don't care. It's not about making money for me. It's just about just wanting to make some different episodes kind of a way of having different some really different episodes that are maybe well they're not different they're still true crime stories but they're just from different places they're just stories that are really meaningful to me and uh, I think that they're they're really worth to listen so um, you can do that there's a link in the show notes that you can just subscribe to and I will be back again very soon as always thank you so much for listening say goodbye to your credit card rewards greedy corporate mega stores led by walmart and target are pushing for a law in congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets the durbin marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it if you love your credit card rewards tell your lawmakers hands off my rewards tell them to oppose the durbin marshall credit card bill when you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.